The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. Leave me the fuck alone! I'm not your tech support bitch. Fuck off. So I'm constantly going, no, no, no stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. Back into your fucking sales hole, loser boy. Well, shall we get rolling here? Alright, we shall. Today is Monday, July 7th, 2014, and this is episode 75 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry, and uh, hey, 75. It's a nice round number. That's pretty impressive. Absolutely. The podcast is now almost as old as you are. (laughs) It's getting there. A couple more years. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, so uh, so as usual, the uh, the thoughts and opinion, opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. And by the way, you have a milestone coming up in a, in a couple of weeks. Will be your your one year anniversary with us. Oh wow! So I think somebody probably lost a bet. We're, we're gonna we're, there's gonna be a big you know big party goats and uh, well. You know, we won't bore the listeners with that. <laughs> so that's great. It's a whole other thing. So uh, I, I don't have any uh, any big update from Bob. Last I talked to him, he was working on the mother of all sparkler bombs last Friday, and I I just didn't hear from him again after that. So Yeah, you know, we got in a little trouble in my neighborhood. My buddy brought over some, some fireworks that had some pretty big boomers and aerials, and around 10 p.m., we... Went out front and launched some, and one neighbor apparently didn't appreciate it, and all we heard was, the cops are on their way! We're like, all right, fine, we'll, we'll stop. You could have you could have come down and asked nicely. You could have, but, you know, if you're going to escalate right to legal action, wow. At least he didn't send you a cease and desist letter from his lawyer. No, but I really <laughs> thought about, like, leaving a note on his front door today, just like really polite and very formal saying, I understand that the events of this evening upset you and your family. My deepest apologies these occurred. And in the future, we encourage you to reach out directly with any concerns you may have about the conduction of our firework displays. That that would have been very, very pleasant of you. I might still do it just, just to see how he reacts. But, uh, but since we don't have any Bob stories, I'm going to steal a little bit of time and, and talk about one other thing related to InfoSec, which is, you know, we talk about risk and mitigating risk. But one thing that, uh, you know, my own personal life is showing me yet again is it's very important that we learn to mitigate risk in our own lives. And uh, I'll tell you something, kids. If your parents are around the age of 60 – you should really be bugging them about getting long-term care insurance. It's really important. Otherwise, you know, people can uh, completely spend down their entire nest egg in a hurry if they need to go into a nursing home or something like that. So a little off topic, but it all comes back around to risk. And, uh, you know, proper insurance is critical. And long-term care is one that nobody really talks about, but it's, it's important. Uh, preparation is always key. All right, so let's jump into our stories. The first thing we have tonight comes from sfgate.com. 
the title is Hacked Companies Face SEC Scrutiny Over Disclosure and Controls. So the SEC has announced that they are opening investigations on a number of companies. I, I don't think there's an exact number of how many companies, but it, apparently it does include Target. And they are looking into whether companies have appropriately guarded their data. And, and in particular, what they're, what they're citing here is that weak controls could potentially reduce the value of assets held by the company. And, and I think it's kind of implied there that they're talking about intellectual property, right? So, um, you know, if you, if you are not doing your due diligence, you could potentially be, uh, you know, basically screwing the shareholders out of, out of value. And, and that's what they're going after. The other, the other deal is that, uh, whether or not these companies who have had breaches have appropriately informed the, the investors. So a couple of years ago, the SEC put out a rule that said that the, uh, th- these public companies have to notify shareholders of any event that has a material effect on share price. And one of the interesting things is, and, and it's still raging to this day, is what the definition of material is. Yeah, that's very undefined. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a very hotly contested thing. And, uh, I, I don't think there's a real good consensus on it. And, you know, I suspect the SEC's view is kind of like that. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, view of the Supreme Court and pornography where they, they know it when they see it, I suppose. Um, well, what it feels like to me is, you know, it's one more stick to beat on them if after a breach. Um, and I don't see how well they're going to be able to get ahead of this and give any sort of realistic guidance to these companies. Uh, I think it's just one more concern. And that's the key that I I really wanted to talk about here is kind of like the FTC. Um, there's not a lot of, there's, there's no safe Harbor guidance being given. It's just, you know, if you do the wrong thing, you're going to potentially be sanctioned. And even the sanctions that, you might suffer are kind of undefined. Um, now, you know, th- that's not to say the, the SEC itself has kind of a loosey-goosey security program because it does directly regulate like broker-dealers. But but even the regulations there relative to, to IT security are, are not very well defined. And I think they're in the process of trying to define that. And I, I just wonder if at some point... We're going to see some expansion of, of, you know, either implicit or explicit controls mandated by the SEC on publicly traded companies. Yeah, and it will likely be another set of crap recommendations that don't really secure things, but companies will manage to and lead us astray yet again. Maybe they'll use the uh, cybersecurity framework because... <laughs> That. Well, that's cyber in the name. How could they go wrong? It's true. It is very true. Uh, so it is, it's a rough one. Uh, I somewhat understand, right? The SEC is there to look out for investors when it comes to public companies. It's one more reason why companies may not want to go public. We've made it very difficult in the U.S. to go public uh, and put a lot of load on these companies when they do. But ultimately, one more thing to watch out for. Yeah, absolutely. 
And, you know, I, I think it's, to me, this is one of those watch this space kind of situations because there's not a lot, again, there's not a lot of specificity, but, you know, I think if you're a public company, it's, it's quite possible that we'll see some, you know, some further guidance coming down the road. And certainly if you do get breached, um, you know, you can expect that there's yet one more entity possibly looking in your shorts. Mm, no fun. No fun at all. So our, our next story comes from Forbes. And this, the title is How Companies Can Rebuild Trust After a Breach. And the article is written about a report which was released by a group called Interactions. They're a, um, a customer experience marketing group. And the title of that report is Retail's Reality, Shopping Behavior After Security Breaches. And this this report is basically a survey of, of a, a bunch of shoppers. And what they found was that uh, that retail or trust of retailers with your personal data is it's pretty low. Only about 45% of respondents said they actually trust their, um, actually, I, I, I said that backwards. 45% of shoppers said they don't trust their retailers to keep their information safe. 12% of loyal shoppers say they would stop shopping if a retailer they, they liked was breached. 36% said they would shop less frequently at a breached retailer. And um, 79% had said uh, for for those who would continue to shop at a breached retailer, seventy nine percent said they would uh, use more cash instead of credit cards. And uh, the breach, or sorry, the report here basically underscored something that's been a commonly held, basically common knowledge that customers who use cash spend less money. And so it's not, you know, it's not a great thing. You want customers to use their plastic. It's kind of counterintuitive because you know there's the discount rate. That you know that that uh, retailers get bre- or get uh, hit with, but if the the customers are spending twenty six percent less with cash than they with with credit cards, then you know uh, they're they're not making out. Now, there's a couple of things that I have a couple of issues I have with this. Um, you know, the, the the whole point of this article is about how you rebuild trust, right? So they they cite this report. But the report again is a survey. Then they they pull a couple of uh, cybersecurity experts who go on to say that transparency and communication are the key, right? We and and my my issue is we don't actually know. I don't feel like we actually know what the key is. Yeah, it's it's we're reaching at straws. I I, I agree. Though though I will say intuitively, I do agree. That communication is key. I think, and they mentioned it here too, that Target really fumbled early on in what they communicated and how they communicated it. So I do think that there is an element of truth here that how you communicate and what you communicate is absolutely critical. And one of the things that they bring up that, that I somewhat agree with is uh, one, something we've harped on, I completely agree with something we've harped a lot on before, which is have a plan before the breach takes place. Uh, and one of the things they talk about is bring in marketing to that conversation about how you're going to communicate this sort of stuff externally, which I agree with. I think it's a good plan, especially when you're not in the middle of a crisis, uh, to figure that out. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I guess my the, the hang up I have is that I, you know I I don't think we object to again what you mentioned and what the article mentioned is the intuition, right? It makes perfect sense that that being transparent and communicating well with your with your customer base who are who have been impacted is intuitively important. However, I don't I don't think we actually know you know what the what objectively what the impact is and that's my I guess that's my my issue. So uh, you're saying there's no statistical evidence to back up that that's the right play. Basically, that's what I'm saying or is there even a relationship between the two? I think you've been taking a lot of statistics classes, my I, friend. I have been taking a ton of statistics classes. No, I, I can't fault that that comment, right? It, the common sense often isn't common. Yeah. Right? It's often wrong. So you may be right. Uh, we don't know. The other thing I want to point out uh, is they have all these stats about how people react when their data is breached and using cash and sort of stuff. But this whole thing leads me to believe that the only data they're talking about is credit card data. I would love for them to compare and contrast reactions of customers who lost only credit card data, only personal data, like names, telephone numbers, right. social security, uh, and both, and see how that affects them. Because there's definitely, I believe, at least somewhat a difference out there. If, if somebody breaches my credit card data, in essence, it's not a debit card. It may be a bit of a hassle, but it's not my liability. It's not really my problem. Uh, if my social security number and which I really think we should be able to change much more easily than we can, there is a way as, as a listener, as a listener very, pointed out, yes, very kindly pointed out to us, there is actually a way to go and change your social security number, but it's a massive pain in the ass. Uh, but if my personal information that could go more into an identity theft situation was stolen, I think that would change the stats on how people would react to a retailer. And I think that's missing from this study right now. Yeah, the other problem I have with the study again is the same problem I have with all of the the the, uh, the Ponymon surveys. You mean aside from the name? Aside from the name, and and the the problem I have is that they're they're opinion surveys, and you get opinions when you ask opinion surveys. You don't necessarily get what people actually do. That's true. And uh, and you know one one thing. You know, again, having taken lots of inferential statistics lately, uh, I, you know, you do find out that people will answer surveys, uh, in, in a, in a way that they believe portrays how they should answer it. No, you're right. That's a great point. And, uh, that's one that I forget sometimes that we definitely should keep in mind. So, so the, there's a, there is another point that I wanted to bring up in here. And that is, again, I, I'm a big proponent for transparency and communication. I think it, I, I think it can only work against you to try to be opaque and, and not communicative. I'm not saying I'm not trying to dispute that at all. But they did they they do bring up, uh, you know, again they they kind of harp on that. But I wanted to point out one potential flaw with that, and and this is something I have personally experienced, and I have it beat into my brain by armies of lawyers um, occasionally, and and that's that you run, you kind of have to balance the the desire to be communicative and transparent early with the the need to be accurate. Oh, that's such a great point. Yeah. And, you know, there are also times that I'm going to point out, I'm going to be a little contrarian. 
it may make sense not to say anything depending on the nature and type of attack and what's going on. It may be tactically appropriate to keep your mouth shut. No. But that's something, yeah, but be accurate, that's for sure. Uh, I guess it all depends on, on your situation as a company and what sort of regulatory environment you're in. Right, right. And, you know, it, there, there's, there's some peril in that, right? Because if you come out and, I mean, let's pick on Target for one second, right? You know, they, I, I think one of the issues they had was they, they didn't come out and announce it until after Brian Krebs released his, his report. They came out the day after. And, and, uh, you know, having been in an environment on the scale of Target, I can tell you that they were, tr- they were probably scrambling trying to figure out what the heck was actually going on, how many credit cards were actually exposed before they made a public statement because it, yeah. it's, it's really bad. And, and, you know, it's, it just looks bad when you have to go out and say, you know, we, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. All we know is that something bad happened. We don't know how it happened. We don't know who's impacted, how many people are impacted. Um, if it's even stopped, you know, that there's a right, wrong or indifferent companies want to, to have some kind of answers when they go forward. And I, you know, I can, I kind of can't blame them for wanting to do that. Um, and you know, there's, there's some problems with not doing that, right? You know, if you go out and say that, oh my gosh, you know, 40 million credit cards were stolen. And in fact, after further research, it was, you know, 40,000, you know, you, you didn't do yourself any favors there. Yeah, and that is true. You know, I've been actually uh, peripherally involved with a situation where there was malware involved that was stealing data, and until that malware was actually reverse engineered, the scope of the breach and what needed to be uh, disclosed changed radically and in a positive way for this particular company. But without knowing more, they were forced into a corner of disclosing a much larger breach than actually occurred. And through investigation and forensics and malware reverse engineering, they were able to shrink that affected mm-hmm. notification. So you make a good point. You do have to balance that. I will say that once it goes public, though, you need to be on the ball as best you oh, can. Oh, I completely agree. And that's yeah. that's why I think companies really want to, to have as much awareness of what's going on before they go public because once it goes public you lose you kind of lose control of uh, of the message and one thing i'll harp on yet again is the companies who have a plan ahead of time are much better off than those who try to make it up as they go Uh, absolutely and and uh I'll, i'll close my comments on this article by saying the the last part of the story is is all about some opaque discussions about how people are not in tune with cyber dangers the way they are with physical dangers. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can probably skip that that last part if you want to read the story. <laughs> so anyhow, moving on, our, our next story comes from InfoWorld, and the title is Prepare Yourself for High Stakes Cyber Ransom. One more t- you know, one, Once again, we need that bumper music, right? Uh, so this, this story comes kind of in the wake of the code spaces deal that we talked about last week. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the author here is pointing out that there seems to be a growing trend in these ransom cases, you know, and, and in fact, I think last week we, we heard 
the uh you know the the actual mailed ransom letters you know the notice of notice of extortion letters that that small businesses are getting and and it's really kind of uh in a way kind of lame because it's you know it's uh the, the extortion threat is they're going to go you know flood Yelp with a bunch of negative reviews and, and things like that it's not not even uh you know a denial of service or or something like that but you know the the, the point is that with each successive success story um, the amount of people who are willing to take these things on is going to keep growing. You know, it's this, it's just going to keep breeding success. And he points out that, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive because code spaces wasn't really a success <laughs> from an extortion perspective. You know, it, it just, just, <laughs> well, <laughs> unless you want to use them as an example for others. Well, and that's exactly his point was, you know, that the expectation is that, whether or not a given extortionist was involved in the code spaces thing, you can probably be guaranteed that everybody's going to be taking credit for it in their extortion demands. You know, you better pay up, or or you're going to be another another code spaces. So, um, the the, uh, the article then goes on with some recommendations on how to prepare. So they have a couple of steps, and the first one is to educate your senior management on on the threat you know so maybe use code spaces as an example and and uh, you know kind of kind of outlining that it's not always possible to to just keep them out right you know I mean, that's going to be the gut reaction as well we don't have to worry about this if we could just keep them out well that's that's a great idea however yeah no not going to work it doesn't always work out that way uh, the next step was would be to ask your management how they want to respond, and, and implicit in that is, would management ever consider paying the ransom? And if the answer is no, well, it's pretty you know pretty clear. And then if the answer is yes, then you got to kind of test where the where the boundaries are. Uh, and then the next thing would be, uh, you, you know. <sighs> Let's see. I guess uh, finding out if your if your insurance pays for ransom or extortions, which you know I I can't imagine this is a common a common thing. Although I did I did read somewhere that a couple of the cyber insurance policies do cover ransom, which which is really weird because you would think that this is something you don't you wouldn't want anybody perpetuating, but. You know. I don't know. I guess it's all negotiable. Yeah, yeah. Um, they they did they did have another one in here that I skipped over about if your if your management says no under under no circumstances are are they going to pay ransom that it might be good for them to go talk with a a CEO of a company that didn't pay the ransom and uh, and just make sure it, they're implying that they understand the consequences fully. Exactly right. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, and then, and then they go on to he goes on to say, you know, let, let, there's some other things you should do, and like walking through the logistics of your response in this kind of a case. You know what what would you do? You know if you were, you know if you were a code spaces, what would you do? You know would you know how to engage Amazon quickly or do 
you know, so, something like that, or, or, you know, would you know, would you run over and yank the, uh, you know, the T1 out of the wall or the cable modem out of the wall, whatever, you know, do you, do you have a plan? What is your plan if this, this kind of a thing were, were to happen to you? And the other point they bring up, which I think is so critically important is backups. So fundamental, just backups and, and offline backups, you know, he, 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 <laughs> You know, it reminded me of a Dr. Seuss song, you know, the way, or Dr. Seuss uh, book, you know, that the, uh, the things that should not be considered backups, you know, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Really think it through though. You know, while we're on the topic of backups, I was thinking about this. Uh, I use an online cloud backup solution and it automatically backs up files. So let's say I get a crypto locker or something similar and it encrypts all my files and backs them up. Mm-hmm. Unless you've got versioning turned on, how are you going to get your old files back? So it's more than just backup. I think it's backup with the concept of a couple of versions back Yeah. because you don't know when that happened. And if you've got automatic backups going on, you may lose access to that original unencrypted file because it just got overridden by the encrypted version. And you may not, yeah, you, you may not notice it right away. Yeah, it's... So it's more than just backups. It's proper backups that can cope with, you know, this sort of situation. I guess it's the same concept as if you had a number of corrupted files over a period of time that got backed up as well, right? You need to be able to go back and look at a non-corrupted version of that file in some way. Well, and I think that that goes to the point of, of testing your backups, making sure that your backups are – oh, I think you're – I mean, there, there's two different issues there. One, right? Wait, one I'm, is – I'm sorry. What did you say? I know testing, right? T- testing your backups. Testing your backups. It's crazy. Back in, back in wow. the old back in the old days, we would we actually used to test our backups. <laughs> never never heard such a thing. Uh, yes. Have I, you submitted this concept to the Nobel Committee yet? I, I feel like a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you know, no, you're absolutely right. You know, it's kind of like when you test DR. You know, you don't know. Right. There's so many times you don't know until you actually try it. Right. But, you know, I think it is worth, I think it's worth giving it a look, right? Because, you know, the, the young, the young crowd who is, uh, who's very enamored with, with cloud looks, can, can fall into a, you know, I'd say a self-delusional trap of thinking they have adequate backups. And I, I dare say that cloud, you know, cl- uh, sorry, code spaces, Probably fell into that into that hole. What, you know? I, what I would advise here is get a good, trusted external third-party consultant to come rip your plan apart. Who yeah, doesn't, doesn't have any sort of allegiance to your organization. There's no politics involved. Uh, they're fresh eyes, right? You know, I'm not just trying to pimp consultants. I'm saying an external third party with no preconceived notions can often see holes that you can't. Yes, I think that's a great a, a great point. Because it is, I mean, you're, it's in the case of code spaces, your business can literally depend on, on this going, you know, to be a going forward concern. So it, it's, it just makes, makes good sense. And the other point he brings up is, you know, there's, there's most of these ransom extortion kinds of things start off in a pretty predictable, set of situations and you should probably think about making sure you're you're properly protected against those and that's really malware and spear phishing 
and you know he, he points out that you know that that today's spear fishing is not like fishing used to be and and that most uh most awareness security awareness programs still kind of treat fishing as as uh you know the the poorly written Nigerian emails <laughs> so i'm going to just put this out here this is not a problem you can solve with user education this is not a problem you can even slow down with user education. User education is a waste of time with this problem. I know that people will disagree with me, but I think the bad guys will continue to be more clever than our users, and it will continue to be a problem that will only be able to be solved with technical controls. I, you know, I'm of, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I, I, I definitely believe that's true, but on the other hand, I think that we can also avoid some amount of potholes with uh you know with with some education but you know we will agree to disagree i'm sure i'm sure statistically there's probably some statistically valid change in the amount of spear fishing that's fallen for with a user education campaign i think they give a false sense of security well you know the one the one thing that i i i would concede is that if you have a determined attacker who's you know who's out to get you they're you know they 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 may not stop right you know, so so yes your employees may evade the first you know dozen emails but you know over time you're if you have a determined adversary they may very well just you know learn learn enough about you know your people or your business or, or whatever that they can finally get in I think he makes my point for me, though, when he says that phishing attacks have evolved and that the user education of old doesn't work. Well, why do you think they evolved? Because they need to keep working. Yeah. And our users are not security folks. They're never going to be. They don't think like we do. We're, we're cynical, paranoid people by nature. So we're always sort of in condition yellow. They're in condition white all the time. Most, you know, 95% of them. And so the fact of the matter is, they're not thinking about this stuff. The brain is wired to be helpful in certain situations like this. And social engineering attacks are incredibly good at using the brain against ourselves. They're using our own psychology against ourselves, and they're always going to be effective because the brain can't change that quickly. So this isn't something that I think education's really going to do much about. I, like I said, I don't, I don't disagree with that line of thought. Well, but I want to fight. Why aren't you disagreeing with me? All right, fine. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Our next our next story. Oh, this one. This one is uh is really a a doozy. So the register.com has a story titled BAE retracts hedge fund hack allegation. Okay, let's go in the wayback machine cuz we talked about this story when it first popped 2 weeks ago. Yeah, and, and if I remember correctly, we were sort of saying this is a really, really, really sophisticated attack. Really tough to do. Yeah. Yep. And uh, there wasn't any real details in it. Nope. So what's our update? So the update is uh, apparently, allegedly, this uh, was a scenario that BAE had concocted for illustrative purposes. And it appar- it is not very clear, uh, and, and nor has BAE made it clear, 
how this story made it out as a an actual story. And in fact, um, some people have astutely pointed out that when when the the person who presented this to Bloomberg and CNBC and on in person interviews um, talked about this as it were an actual event, right? It was, you know, there, there were no hypotheticals. It was, it was very, very concrete, very matter of fact and, and whatnot. Um, by the way, the executive who made that presentation to both those networks is apparently on personal leave. <laughs> so, um, so, so this highly sophisticated attack that infected the hedge funds trading machines and added microscopic delays so that somebody else could take advantage of it never happened. Never happened. Now, you know, I, I will tell you, you know, to put, to put your tinfoil hat on for a second, Raf, Los, who's the, who's the, uh, uh, runs another podcast, uh, the Don the Rabbit Hole security podcast had, had put out there on, on Twitter, his, his, uh, conspiracy theory that, this actually happened and the the uh, BAE was basically violating their non-disclosure by talking about it. Now, I I still think that it seems to me to be such an unlikely scenario that I'm I'm going to stick with the retraction of the story. However, you know, it, it is an interesting point and I I could certainly see a company who made a mistake like that, trying to trying to correct their their wrong in this way. But you know, hey, you know, it, it certainly seemed a little uh, a little far fetched. But you know, it, when at the time it came out, it seemed uh, it seemed relatively authoritative and and something worth talking about. So, hey, there it is. I guess the moral of the story is, you know. Be careful what you believe. Yeah, they, they can't. <laughs> they can't put out anything on the internet that's not true, right? <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a weird one. This is a weird one. But I, I, you know, I go back to my comment that I made two weeks ago, which is why go to this level of sophistication? There's much lower hanging fruit. Yeah, exactly right. Absolutely, and I, I think, I think the ability to monetize it. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to say necessarily that the attack itself would be all that troublesome right i think it would, I, th- I don't think it's necessarily that difficult to to modify a system to to add a delay i think where it becomes extraordinarily difficult is how you monetize that yeah how do you, how do you make that into something that's beneficial to you but unless it's a ransom campaign again but yeah i still think if it if it, if it actually did happen i'm going with bitcoin miners all right. Absolutely. Rock on. I'm going to go with City at Home, folks. They're out there. <laughs> They're still working on that. They're man. still working on that, yes. Oh, boy. All right. Our, uh, our last story comes from Computer World, and the title is Hackers Hit More Businesses Through Remote Access Accounts. And uh, so so the story here is a company called ISS, and not not – not the International Space Station and not the place we used to work, but Information Systems and Supplies, who is a point-of-sale system provider. They have notified their customer that, oh, it's so painful to say, their LogMeIn account got compromised. And apparently they used the same LogMeIn account 
as a remote access method to manage POS terminals at, at I guess, all of their customers. Same same password, huh? Uh, apparently. Now, I, I sat and I thought about this, and and not not for a, for a really long time, but doesn't PCI require two-factor authentication into your CDE? Uh, yeah, but that's only if, A, your examiner finds it, B, you care, C, you fix it, I mean, these guys could be all self-assessed. Who knows if they're small enough? Well, I, I agree that they could be self-assessed, and, and they probably are. In fact, and, if, if they're outsourcing you know, it, the reality is they these particular customers, right? These are bars and restaurants who buy POSs. They may have no idea or even care how this works. So clearly, this LogMeIn account was remote support management. Um, you know, so that the parent, you know, the, the manufacturer could get in and do patches and fix stuff or whatever it is they needed to do. Probably these customers had no idea. No, I, I guarantee you they didn't. And, and by the way, it was also used to install malware that stole card data too. Eh. Uh, but minor. But yeah, I mean, if you get past <laughs> that, I, I think you're exactly right. This the this company sold kind of canned, you know, canned POS terminals. As best I can tell, that. Where they would provide remote maintenance, and and I think the the issue is at least that that I can see is, you know, I don't think it's ISS that's going to be on the hook. So I I, I have to wonder is the PCI council going to come after? I mean, I I, I agree with you that these companies are almost certainly going to be small enough to self-assess. No no dispute, but I don't think that lets them off the hook from any of the requirements. Yeah, the other thing I, you know, I was thinking about too on this one is there are a lot of times when, when I was working for manufacturing stuff, customers, sophisticated customers would, would have us fill out elaborate long questionnaires about this sort of stuff. I always thought it was a massive pain in the butt. But you look at it here, a good customer, you know, a good company that's doing sort of vendor risk analysis and, and, that sort of thing probably would have picked up on this, yeah, and probably would have said, mm, "Wait a second, but this is such an obscure, small little thing. It's tough, man. It's tough, and I, it's just one more thing we've got to be on the ball on about these third-party connections coming in." Yeah, and that, and the second half of the article goes on to the point out that there's trust, trust. They reference Trustwave's annual report. They said that sixty-three percent. Uh, 450 breaches they investigated were caused by security vulnerabilities that were introduced by a third party. So, you know, think things like the target breach and, and, and this one here. And, and so I think the, the, the net point is that vendor management is becoming a very important thing. And it's up to now for a lot of companies been a rubber stamp. You know, it's okay. I'll send you a, I'll send you a spreadsheet. And I'll, you know, I'll wink at you and you'll, you know, go through and check all the boxes and I'll wink back. And well, <laughs> let's be realistic about this for a moment. So you've got two choices in POS systems, let's say theoretically. One is a guy who doesn't care that much about security, but, you know, hey, he's going to get the job done. It's going to work and it's going to cost you $100 a month. The guy over here cares a lot about security. And as a result, he has higher costs. He's got more stuff built in and it costs you $150 a month. Where are you going to go? Customers aren't demanding security. They're looking for low cost. 
And so this is, you know, this yeah. goes back to the old theory that you could have a completely secure version of Windows, but it's going to take 10 years of development cost you a million dollars a copy. Where's the balance? Right. Right. Well, I, I, I guess I was, when I, I was thinking more, more broadly about vendors in general, right? I, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think we're ever going to see bars and, and, you know, standalone restaurants having a, you know, an elaborate vendor management program. I, I guess I'm just absolutely floored that the manufacturer of uh, the manufacturer and supporter of point of sale systems to the best of my understanding isn't, you know, isn't doing what they're obligated to do or, or what the customers are obligated to do under the PCI requirements. Well, um, they probably don't know and don't care. Well, I'm obviously not. Now, I'd be happy they to... They used log me in. <laughs> what more do you need to know about their level of sophistication? I I agree. I, I agree. Come on. This, I'm just frustrated by these guys. I, I, the challenge is, and this is where I, I really support entrepreneurs, I really support small businesses, but they're not... They don't have the margin. They don't have the level of sophistication because they don't have the staff. And they really probably can't afford it. And so this is where it goes back to SMBs have a really tough time getting security right. And they're going to keep getting owned over and over and over again on, on stuff like this. I don't see a way to fix that. No, I, I don't. I don't either. You know, it, it is an interesting problem because, you know, think there, there's, there's two perspectives to this. There's the customer, right? And then there's this ISS. Because I would imagine they're probably also a small business or, you know, SMB who, who has the same kinds of challenges. You know, they're trying to, they're trying to rub some pennies together and make, make some money in there. You know, obviously they use log me in. They're not, you know, they're not dropping Cisco VPNs at each, (laughs) at each customer, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just doing what, what, what's needed to be done to, to deliver the service and, and obviously not thinking about security yeah. apparently too thoroughly. You know, we there's a lot we don't know, and I don't want to, you know, defame them too much. But well, uh, no, I, in some ways it's I'm not saying it's not their fault because it is their fault. But what I'm saying is it's really, 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 really tough for a small company to get this right. Yeah, but I think my where I have some problems is that you know those those restaurants were kind of implicitly relying on that company I agree. to do the right thing. And so now you're yeah. in this this really weird position of everybody thinks they're, you know, they're you know, in the right by not, you know, and, and not doing any you know, they're not obligated to do it, right? So from ISS's perspective, well, you know, the customer should have if the customer wanted us to use two factor and not use logmein, they should have, you know, they could have paid $500 a month more and we would have been happy to you know, to do it. And, and from the cost, you know, from the, the restaurant's perspective, they say, well, look, we, you know, we hired this company and they know what they're doing. We don't know what we're doing. And so from everybody's perspective, they're right. And in here, you know, the only people, the people that really get screwed are the customers or actually at the end of the day, it's the banks, not even the customers. It's the banks that get screwed. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, I think the lesson learned for here is if you are in at least an enterprise of sufficient size that you've got dedicated security folks, it's incumbent upon those security folks to understand and audit these third parties properly. Yeah. So you know what risk you're introducing to the environment. That's 
and, and that's the key takeaway because I don't think there's a lot of ISS style companies nor banks or not sorry not banks but restaurants and bars listening to this podcast. <laughs> so, but I you know I think the net point is that a lot of us do businesses with or a lot of do a lot of us do business with small third party companies, mm-hmm. and and if the, if anything this should point out to us that. You know, small third-party companies don't necessarily have it together, and and they can host you up pretty good. So you you need to, you know, either need to have a you know have a robust program to be vetting them, or you need to make sure that they don't they have a limited ability to to host you up if they get owned. Yeah, it's tough. It's but nobody said the job was easy. <laughs> That's true. That's why we make the big bucks, right? Yeah. All right. Well, that is uh, that is the show for tonight. As usual, we appreciate your uh, your listening, and uh, it's always good talking with you. Uh, if you like the show, give us uh, you know give us some stars on iTunes. You can find the podcast and back episodes, show notes with links to the stories we talk about on the website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec, and you can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And until next week, have a great one. See you guys. Take care. Thanks. Bye.